For many people around the world, faith is a means for hope and comfort. It can be the guiding light you need during difficult times. It can be a place of comfort, enlightenment, hope, and security. When you listen to the Dying to Eat podcast and we explore how people worship around the world and through time, it's my hope that you not only learn a little bit about your fellow man, I hope you get some enjoyment from the stories and insight into how our world can have commonalities as well as differences. We should be able to exist together in tolerance and understanding. This episode, we're looking at a group that doesn't practice either of those qualities. If you have never heard the name Westboro Baptist Church, you may be wondering what I'm alluding. When this episode's over, I hope you have a deeper understanding how organized religion can divide as well. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that dwells into different cultures, regions, and historical periods while exploring different attitudes about death and food. If you love food, history, and good stories, stick around until the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. According to an article written by Laurel Lee for Marie Claire, CBD, and I'm quoting, can't get you high, says Alex Capano, Chief Science Officer of Anna Hemp, a Kentucky-based health and wellness brand specializing in CBD products. She continues with, they are both relatively safe, but CBD is arguably safer for several reasons. For one, it won't affect your motor skills or cognition, so you can use CBD and still drive your car or get through the day at the office without causing co-workers to raise an eyebrow. Also, while the THC in a joint, vape pen, or gummy might leave you feeling paranoid, CBD actually has anxiotelic, which is that chemical that nixes anxiety, and it's an antipsychotic. For your questions and CBD needs, reach out for high-quality product at thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Westboro Baptist Church. I'm going to try to step lightly as the fanatical fever that hallmarks this group of around 100 members is a history of lawsuits by the group against outsiders and against them by people that they offend. My public comment is I do not share their beliefs against minorities, our government, or our military. I will ask you that you don't visit their website or show them any other support because it could lead to fueling the hate, the homophobia, and disrespect that they've shown to many others through their relatively short history. The Southern Poverty Law Center describes them as, and I quote, Westboro Baptist Church is arguably the most obnoxious and rabid hate group in America. In the same article, the church's news release on January 15, 1998 says this about the church outside. Filthy sodomites crave legitimacy as dogs eating their own vomit and sows wallowing in their own feces craving unconditional love. Now I want you to take a minute and let that sink in as we look deeper. While Westboro bears the name of Baptist, the organization itself has been denounced by the Baptist World Alliance, the Southern Baptist Convention, and other mainstream Christian denominations. On its own, Baptism is vastly different and much less radical. 
most widely accepted view on Baptist origins is the English separatist view, starting with a Baptist church in 1609 in Amsterdam. Dutch Republic with English separatist John Smith as its pastor. During the Protestant Reformation, the Church of England, or the Anglins, if you will, separated from the Roman Catholic Church. There were some Christians who were not content with the achievements of the mainstream Protestant Reformation. There also were Christians who were disappointed that the Church of England had not made corrections of what some considered to be errors and abuses. Of those most critical of the Church's direction, some chose to stay and to make constructive changes within the Anglican Church. They became known as Puritans. Others decided they must leave the Church because their dissatisfaction and became known as separatists. We'll explore that in other episodes because it affects so many denominations and Christian beliefs. In uh, 1579, Faust Sonatus founded the Unitarians in Poland, which was a tolerant country. The Unitarians taught baptism by immersion, meaning that baptisms usually, usually took place in a river or other body of water in order to be fully immersed like the story of John the Baptist. When Poland ceased to be tolerant, they fled to Holland. In Holland, the Unitarians introduced immersion baptism to the Dutch Mennonites. This is where John Smith enters the picture. While at Fellows of Christ College, Cambridge, he had broken his ties with the Church of England. It was at this time that Smith started meeting with a large group of English separatists Keep in mind that because of the persecution of religious nonconformists to the Church of England, any Christians of the British Empire who did not practice the same religion as the king did so in grave danger. While John Smith was ahead of the curve and went into exile in with a gathering of his fellow separatists fleeing Amsterdam, Smith and his lay supporter Thomas Helwys and I think I'm saying that name right, it's H-E-L-W-Y-S, together with those that they led, broke, into, broke with other English exiles because Smith and Helwys were uh, convinced they should be baptized as believers. In 1609, Smith first baptized himself and then baptized the others. While still there, Smith wrote a tract titled The Character of the Beast, or The False Constitution of the Church. Entity expressed two propositions. First, infants are not to be baptized. And second, anti-Christians converted are to be admitted into the true church by baptism. He was convinced on the basis of his interpretation of biblical scripture that infants would not be damned should they die in infancy. Smith did not stay with the separatist group, however, and layman Thomas Helwys took over the leadership, leading the church back to England in 1611. Smith commenced that his self-baptism was invalid and applied the Mennonites to the Mennonites for membership. He died while waiting for membership, and some of his, followers, some of his followers became Mennonites themselves. Thomas Helwys and others kept their baptism and their Baptist commitments. The modern Baptist denomination is an outgrowth from Smith's movement. Now, did I say that this is the most widely accepted view of Baptist origins? But it's not the only one. The minority view is that early 17th century Baptists were influenced by, but not directly connected to, continental Anabaptists. Anna 
baptism is a Christian movement which traces its origins to the Radical Reformation movement. The movement is commonly understood to be an offshoot of, of Protestantism, though this view is not shared by Anabaptists who view themselves as a separate branch of Christianity. But we're not talking about them. According to this view, the General Baptists shared similarities with Dutch Waterlander Mennonites, one of the many Anabaptist groups. These similarities included believers' baptism only, religious liberty, separate, separation of church and state, and Armenian views of salvation, predestination, and original sin. However, the relations between Baptists and Anabaptists were stained pretty early on. In 1624, the then five existing Baptist churches of London issued a condemnation of the Anabaptists. Furthermore, the original group associated with Smith, popularly believed to be the first Baptist, broke with the Waterlander Mennonite Anabaptist. There are a few other views on the origin of baptism, but they are seldom accepted and very scarcely known. But the story doesn't end there. As most beliefs tend to do, baptism spread first through Europe and then across the seas to America. Both Roger Williams and John Clark, his compatriot and co-worker for religious freedom, are variously credited as founding the earliest Baptist church in North America. In 1639, Williams established a Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island, and Clark began a Baptist church in Newport, Rhode Island though it's unclear which came first. The Great Awakening energized the Baptist movement, and the Baptist community experienced spectacular growth. Baptists became the largest Christian community in many southern states, including among the enslaved black population. Baptist missionary work in Canada began in the British colony of Nova Scotia. That's the same area that present-day Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are now. The first official record of a Baptist church in Canada was that of Horton Baptist Church in Wolfville, Nova Scotia on October 29, 1778. The church was established with the assistance of the New Light evangelist Henry Alline. Many of Alline's followers after his death would convert and strengthen the Baptist presence in the Atlantic region. Two major groups of Baptists formed the basis of the churches in the Maritimes. These were referred to as regular Baptists, who were Calvinistic, and the free will Baptists, who, learned toward a, who leaned more toward an um, Armenian doctrine. In May 1845, the Baptist congregations in the United States split over slavery and missions. The Home Mission Society prevented slaveholders from becoming appointed as missionaries. The split created the Southern Baptist Convention, while the Northern congregations formed their own umbrella organizations, now called the American Baptist Churches USA. Many Baptist churches chose to affiliate with organizational groups that provided fellowship without control. The largest such group in the U.S. is the Southern Baptist Convention. There also are a substantial number of smaller cooperative groups. Finally, there are independent Baptist churches that choose to remain independent of any denomination, organization, or association. 
The modern independent Baptist tradition began in the late 19th and early 20th centuries among local denominational Baptist congregations whose members were concerned about the advancement of the modernism and liberalism into national Baptist denominations and conventions in the United States and the United Kingdom. In response to the concerns, some local Baptist churches separated en masse from their former denominations and conventions and reestablished the, convention, the congregations as independent Baptist churches. In other cases, the more conservative members of the existing churches withdrew from their local congregations and set about establishing new independent Baptist churches. The formation of the Westboro Baptist Church, or WBC, started in a very similar fashion. Westboro Baptist Church originated as a branch of the East Side Baptist Church, established in 1931 on the east side of Topeka, Kansas. In 1954, Eastside hired Fred Phelps as an associate pastor and then promoted him to pastor of its new plant, Westboro Baptist, which operated in 1955 on the west side of Topeka. This first public service was held on the afternoon of November 27, 1955. After Westboro was established, Phelps broke ties with Eastside to become independent of any Baptist denomination. Phelps would go on to become a veteran of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. He founded the Phelps Chartered Law Firm in 1964, which has since been used to sue communities that are the targets of Westboro's protest. Westboro Baptist first began protesting homosexuality in 1989 after the discovery of what they refer to as a tea room, which they established, which they established the meaning was a public lavatory used for homosexual interactions. The group later began picketing Gage Park six blocks northwest of its headquarters in Topeka in 1991, saying it was a den of anonymous homosexual activity. Sounds like they got a lot of guys out there, you know, trying to find out what's going on. That alone makes me wonder. But anyway, soon, its protest had spread throughout the city, and within three years, WBC was traveling across the country. Phelps explained in 1994 that he considered the negative reaction to the picketing to be proof of his righteousness. <laughs> it takes a special kind of man to think that such a response could only mean approval, you know? So, on August 20th, 1995, a pipe bomb exploded outside the home of Shirley Phelps Roper the daughter of Fred Phelps. The blast damaged an SUV, a fence, and part of the house, but no one was injured. In 1996, two men were arrested for the bombing and both admitted to causing the blast. They had believed that Phelps Roper's house was that of the pastor and wanted to retaliate against Westboro's anti-gay protest at Washburn University. One of the bombers was fined $1,751 and was sentenced to 16 days in prison plus 100 hours of community service. Man, I would have helped him pay for that. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not for bombing anybody. That's, that's the wrong way to go. But gosh, uh, $1,751. I wonder where the $1 came from. Must have been tax. Or tithe, right? Maybe it was tithe. This did not delay the picketing and protest in the slightest. 
From the 1990s to today, members of WBC continue to show up with homophobic slogans and other hate speech around the country, sometimes several times a week. Their disdain even extended outside the LGBTQ community. While WBC members have protested at Jewish institutions over the years, such institutions were not a major focus of the group until April 2009. Since then, WBC has targeted dozens of Jewish institutions around the country, from Israel consulates to synagogues to Jewish community centers, disrupting anti or distributing anti-Semitic flyers to announce planned protests at these sites. WBC also has been sending volumes, in some cases dozens over the course of a week, of faxes and emails to anti-Semitic and anti-gay messages to various Jewish institutions and individuals. <laughs> I just don't understand their thought process. You know, are they going to change someone's, uh, you know, the, the way that they are born sexually by sending them a, a fax, telling them that they're wrong and that they're hated? It just doesn't make sense to me. In, in addition uh, to these actions, in April 2010, the group began mailing virally anti-Semitic DVDs to Jewish organizations and leaders. The DVD also attacked President Obama, describing him as Antichrist and filled with anti-gay and anti-Catholic Bertal. Uh, other WBC targets include schools that the group deems to be accepting of homosexuality, including Catholic, Catholic, Lutheran, and other Christian denominations that WBC feels are heretical, as well as funerals for people murdered or killed in accidents like plane crashes. Worst of all, they have been known to show up at services of American soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, a tactic the group started in 2005. For those of you guys that listen to me out there on a regular basis, you know I'm a veteran and I really hold that dear to my heart. I, I'm definitely behind our American military and those service members and the rest of the vets. And Though the group's specific focus may shift over time, they believe that nearly all Americans and American institutions are sinful, so nearly any individual organization that can be targeted. But Americans aren't the only victims of these deplorable demonstrations. Additionally, the group has tried to stage protests in foreign countries. In February 2009, the WBC announced plans to travel to Great Britain to protest the staging at a school there of the Laramie Project, a play that was about the vicious murder of a young gay man, Matthew Shepard, in 1998. They were unsuccessful as British government officials barred the group from entering the country. The group made it to Canada in August 2008, where they picketed the funeral of a young man who was the victim of a brutal murder in a Greyhound bus. They made it to national news for that. Authorities there reported trying to prevent the group from entering their country, but the WBC claims it was able to evade uh, Canadian Border Patrol agents to stage the protest. The goal behind all of this is simply publicity. The WBC directs its efforts at events that have attracted heavy news coverage, like the deaths of soldiers killed in wars or the victims of well-publicized accidents or at venues such as high schools, 
which are likely to generate large counter-protest and community outrage. Many of its protests are held in response to events that have generated at least local media coverage, as in the April 2009 protest of the staging of the musical Rent at a high school in Newport Beach, California, which had been the subject of local controversy. The group also announced plans to picket at locations abroad in the hopes of generating foreign press coverage. They've even gone so far as to create music videos and documentaries, some of which were played on national television. In fact, my writer-researcher Nellie had a personal run-in with the WBC in 2016. Now, know that she helped write this, so I have her blessing to share her story. She had just finished her senior year at college, and graduation was just around the corner. When she arrived at the university stadium to pick up her cap and gown, the entrance was blocked by a crowd of WBC protesters. It was a land-grant university, and anybody could come into the campus and say whatever they wanted, including hate speech. The WBC had shown up to specifically protest the graduation ceremony, believing the institution to be a nesting place for homosexuality and abortion. Nellie had to keep her head low as she walked inside, the people around her shouting homophobic slurs and threats of damnation. They shoved their signs in her face and spit on her shoes. One woman even reached out and grabbed her dress, ripping the strap. She made it safely inside, and the graduation went off without a hitch, but even though the walls of the stadium, their shouts could still be heard from the outside. But they haven't been unchallenged. Many people who haven't, that, that just couldn't ignore their abhorrent acts fought back against them from local counter-protests to celebrities and even to politicians. When WBC began picketing funerals of soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, people responded by circling grave sites to block WBC from the view of people attending the funeral. WBC has an ongoing fight with a rock band the Foo Fighters. And when they picketed the band's performances, David Grohl and company have responded by interrupting the protest with an in-person performance. That's happened twice. A, ma a majority of the states have even passed legislation that attempts to limit their interference at the funerals of fallen soldiers. In addition, in October 2007, a federal jury in Baltimore, Maryland, found members of the WBC guilty of violating a right to privacy and intentionally inflicting emotional distress against the family of Matthew Snyder, who was a Marine who was killed in Iraq in 2006. Snyder's father, Albert, was the first individual to attempt such a lawsuit against the group, and this was the first time the church had been held liable for its military funeral protest. There have been a number of other lawsuits brought against the WBC for the protest and the pickets in other states, all met with varying degrees of, of uh, success. The group's become less active in the past few years, but with the growing impact of Black Lives Matter in the news and on social media, the WBC has continued to impede the progress of any ideals that they deem to be sinful. In my opinion, the Westboro Baptist Church made quite a statement in 2014 when its founder, Fred Phelps, passed away. On March 15, 2014, 
Nathan Phelps, who was Phelps' estranged son, reported that Phelps was in very poor health and was receiving hospice care. He said that Phelps had been excommunicated from the church in August 2013 and then moved into a house where he was basically where he had basically stopped eating and drinking. Phelps died of natural causes shortly before midnight on March 19, 2014 at the age of 84. Well, that's a lot of years to hate. His daughter Shirley stated that a funeral for her father would not be held because the church does not worship the dead. So think about that. All of that hate. All of those funeral services that they disrupted. And he basically just skated by by not having one. Many people outside the family speculate that the true reason for not having a ceremony was to avoid the same disruption that his followers had caused for so many other funerals. According to Nathan Phelps, Fred Phelps' body was immediately cremated and according to his granddaughter, Megan Phelps Roper, Phelps' cremated remains were buried in an unmarked grave in Kansas. A man whose conviction turned so many against him had faded away into obscurity. It's not quite the grand and enchanting tradition that I've talked about in so many past episodes, but nonetheless, it's quite the way to go. So now, let's turn our attention to something happier. Let's talk about this week's recipe. We're going to do... uh, a dish that, that I grew up uh, eating in church and, and all kinds of social events is chicken Florentine casserole. The first thing you need is a fryer chicken, I'd say about three pounds, two cans of cream of mushroom soup, two packages of 16 ounces of frozen spinach, three cloves of minced garlic, one and a half cups of fresh grated Parmesan cheese divided into one cup and one half cup, three cups of shredded mozzarella divided into one cup and two cups, half a cup of chicken broth, one tablespoon of each of the following, salt, pepper, garlic powder, dried thyme, dried oregano. Need a little extra salt and pepper to taste and some olive oil. So preheat your oven at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Mix the seasonings and set them aside. Coat the chicken with a light coat of oil and then cover with the mixed seasonings that you just made. Bake for approximately one hour or an internal temperature of 170 degrees. Remove the chicken from the oven and set it aside until it gets cool enough that you can handle. Reduce the oven temperature to 350 degrees. Now, mix everything else in a large mixing bowl, reserving half a cup of Parmesan, two cups of mozzarella. When the chicken is cool enough to shred, then add that to the bowl. Make sure it's mixed really well, and then in a 6x9 casserole dish, pour everything in it and spread it out evenly. Top with the reserved Parmesan, and then with the reserved mozzarella. So you'll have a strong, nice, even layer of cheese on the top. Bake it at 350 degrees for about 50 minutes or until the cheese is browned on the top. Be careful not to burn your cheese now. Serve it hot, and I hope you really enjoy it. I'm your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, which was co-written and researched by Nellie Grace, edited and produced by Producer Pete. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout-out to Sharon Farmville, Artistic Reality in Portland, Oregon, 
Dark Tide Tattoos in Lake Worth, Florida. Christy under, under, what do you call that on the bottom? Underscore. Christy underscore tall. Keeley's. And Lisa A. Rickwin 134235. Whom all follow us on Instagram as well as on the air. Your support drives the show and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on the latest episodes. And until next time, stay likely.